So how is it that we have Professor Richard Freund here in Southern California? Faith Herschler is claiming it's because of her. Not exactly, Faith, but Faith did say for a few years that we should bring you. That's Faith over there. But do I listen to Faith all the time? No, sometimes. No, I'm kidding. I do, I take, but, but, you know, things have to come together. So how do things come together? Faith did the recommendation, but there were two other things that happened. One thing was that, as I mentioned, we took a group to, on a roots trip to Lithuania and Poland, and I tried for about a year before any trip, whether it's Israel or Poland or even New York, where we went three times, I do a lot of research. So those of you on the trip know you get an email once every hour, <laughs> only for a year, it's only for about a year, of things that you may want to read, see, or write. So, I wanted to outline quickly three things that intrigued me when I was looking at Lithuania. I came across the following headlines. Summer 2016, escape tunnel dug by hand is found at Holocaust massacre site. A team of archeologists and map makers say they have uncovered a forgotten tunnel that 80 Jews dug largely by hand as they tried to escape from a Nazi extermination site in Lithuania about 70 years ago. Next headline, summer 2017, archeologists uncovered the heart of Nazi raised Vilnius synagogue. A team of Israeli-American Lithuanian archaeologists have uncovered the heart of the great synagogue in Vilnius, which was raised by the Nazis 70 years ago. Actually, I think they distorted the, uh, the uh, Russians raised it. The discovery of the ritual baths, considered a vital part of an active Jewish community, is the most exciting find in the second year of excavations at the site. And finally, summer 2018, international research team discovers grave of Anne Frank of Lithuania. This one was particularly interesting because I'd never heard of this person. Uh, Matilda Olken and her family were killed by a local militia affiliated with Nazi Germany in 1941 in Rokishkis, Lithuania. The finding is significant because Olken's recently discovered writings and poems captured the thoughts of a young college student caught in the horrors of the Holocaust in a manner similar to Anne Frank's diary, which was penned during the German occupation of the Netherlands. So I find these three, I mean, Lithuania is a very small country. I find these three headlines, I've read the articles, and I'm trying to figure out what is the commonality? And then I discovered there is a commonality, and as Professor Richard Freund, he was involved, if not in charge, of all three of those. Wow. Okay? Yes. So the final piece to how Richard Freund uh, landed up here is that my parents moved to a new condominium in Newton. My mom got in the elevator and, said, and called me and said, hey, you know, I just met the former head of Nova in the elevator. She's my neighbor. And I said, no, oh, that's interesting. She had her nephew, her nephew in the elevator, and he does digs in Lithuania. Maybe you should call him. I said, is his name Richard Freund? How did you know? I said, because I just read these articles. So I emailed Richard Freund through some contacts, and I said, can you open up the dig site? Because we have a group coming, and we want to see the great synagogue. He said, of course. He makes a call. Our group gets to go see the dig site. He couldn't meet us at the dig, because I think you were in another part of Lithuania for that day. But he met me and my family and my daughter, my parents and my daughter on Shabbat gave us a private tour of some of the, of the sites in Lithuania. And uh, I said, okay, we'll bring you here to Orange County. So please join me. Oh, you know what? Before I say please join me, I should tell people who you are. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about who he is, and then you can join me and welcome him to Orange County. So uh, some of you were there last night. I don't know if you heard the whole bio. I'm going to repeat it. Uh, Professor Freund holds an, an MA, PhD, and rabbinic ordination from the Jewish Theological Seminary and was recently appointed the inaugural holder of the Bertram and Gladys Aaron Endowed Professorship in Jewish Studies at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. For 20 years prior to his appointment, Dr. Freund was the Maurice Greenberg Professor of Jewish History and Director of the Maurice Greenberg Center for Jewish Studies, Judaic Studies at the University of Hartford. 
Uh, Professor Freund has directed six archaeological projects in Israel and three projects in Europe on behalf of the University of Hartford, including um, Bethesda, Qumran, the Cave of Letters, Nazareth, Yavne, Har Harkom, um, Mount Sinai, as well as archaeological projects in Burgos and Cadiz, Spain, and a research project at the extermination camp of Sobibor, Poland. In his 20 years at the University of Hartford, he led a total of 30 different expeditions to Egypt, Jordan, Morocco, the UK, Argentina, Greece, Peru, Mexico, Spain, Israel, Poland, Lithuania. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Time Magazine, Reader's Digest, Newsweek, Archaeology. Um, he's been seen on BBC, MSNBC, CNN, NPR, and Fox, uh, and in hundreds of media outlets worldwide. His work has been chronicled in more than a dozen television documentaries from National Geographic, CNN, Discovery, the History Channel, and PBS. He's perhaps best known for leading an international group of archaeologists, scientists, and historians as they search for the lost city of Atlantis, which you found, which he found. Um, Freund's team discovered six Stone Age anchors in southern Spain. Dot, dot, I think that's related to that. His most recent work in Lithuania was chronicled in a recent Nova Science series episode, Holocaust Escape Tunnel. Has anybody seen any of these Nova specials? Um, on the new discoveries made in the Ponar burial pits and the Great Synagogue of Vilna, Lithuania. Most recently, Professor Freund and a group of researchers and students located the exact burial site of Matilda Oken, I just mentioned that, who along with her family and several neighbors were executed by Nazi collaborators. Uh, um, Professor Freund is the author of six books on archaeology, two books on Jewish ethics, and over 100 scholarly articles, and has appeared in 15 TV documentaries. Professor Freund's most recent book, Digging Through History, was published uh, in 2012, unless this one is more recent. This is more recent. This is more recent. Please join me in welcoming to Orange County, Professor Richard Freund. So I told my publisher that I would hold up the book because I only brought six copies. And uh, those of you who were here, there last night, I sold out all the books that I had there last night. But I have six copies of this. You can see what the book looks like. It's a very unique title, Archaeology of the Holocaust. There's nothing like it. And um, you can get it on Amazon. But today, but today I can sign it. And then you can sell it on eBay for twice the price. <laughs> so uh, for those of you, I want to just make sure that I know who, who these people are. Uh, how many people have been to Lithuania? How many people have been to Poland? Okay, that's not bad, that's not bad. This is, this is, this is pretty good. So I'm, uh, you should know that I'm, I'm working in this archeology span of the Holocaust. I'm working in Lithuania, Poland, and Rhodes, Greece. I've been working for the past five years in a place called Rhodes. And for those of you who don't know, there was an ancient, ancient Jewish community on the island of Rhodes that had been there for 2,300 years and were all rounded up on one day uh, in 1944. And they were taken on a boat, brought to Athens, taken on a train for three weeks to Auschwitz. 150 people survived. But this is the new frontier for Holocaust studies. Because all of their history is still maintained in the synagogues, in the buildings, in the places they lived. And so part of our job today 
in, and I tell people, this is the new frontier of Holocaust studies, science. Science will make sure that as we are losing day by day, those survivors that are going to be able to talk about the, the, what happened in the Holocaust, science will be able to continue to investigate all these locations for the future. And woe to us if we do not continue this research. Because uh, there'll come a time where people say, did it really happen? And so find, using science and using archaeology to uncover these things are, is very important. And we have to do it while there are still living testimonies, people who can tell us about what happened there. So part of this work is, what am I doing? I'm an ancient I'm an ancient archaeologist, meaning I'm in the ancient periods of the Roman period, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. And so why am I investigating the Holocaust? A modern period archaeological question. So about six years ago, I was at a conference, and the head of the Israel Antiquities Authority, where I've been working for 25 years, comes to me at the conference and says, you know, Richard, I'd like to work together with you. And I said, oh, John, John Seligman, he's, you know, very famous. He was an archaeologist in Jerusalem. He says, oh, I said, great, you're a Byzantine specialist. So I thought he was going to say to me, let's work together on a Byzantine project at one of these ancient churches that are in Israel. I work on Roman period. Let's work together. That will be great because as you're going to discover, I have a method that is very different than everybody else's method. The method is, and I want everybody to say this and quote it in my name, so repeat after me, non-invasive non archaeology. Ooh. <laughs> nice word, I made it up. Okay? Non-invasive archaeology is where you go and we use geoscience basically to map the subsurface before we touch it. Because archaeology is destructive, destructive expensive, labor-intensive, very ineffective, I'm sorry to tell you. Very, they put all of these things together in the lab, and then they go, so what did you discover? And they say, I'm not quite sure. Could be this, or it could be that. So the biggest problem of archaeology is it's so, it is just destructive. You destroy things in order to be able to understand them. Labor intensive, I have to bring tens of thousands of students in order to excavate an area. Expensive, I have to schlep them to another country. I have to build a lab. I have to do all these things in a very short amount of time in a foreign country. You know, when people say to me, oh, I got a great rental space for you for your lab, and then build all these things. And then at the end of the day, it's very ineffective. Plus, this is the kicker. It's also very insensitive, meaning you go where you have to go. You excavate what you have to excavate. You excavate because it's there. Well, sometimes you can't really excavate these things. So 
I became very well known, but basically corner of the market on non-invasive archaeology. I have a geoscience team that comes out of Calgary that are gas and oil experts looking for gas and oil. And what I did was I borrowed their technology for the past 25 years to go out in the field and find archaeological finds to establish what's below the surface before we touch it. So what I do is non-invasive, not very labor-intensive, not very expensive, very effective, and very sensitive. Meaning, I can tell people after I looked at the subsurface, we should not be excavating there. There are thousands of people who are buried there. Or I can say, this is a, this is a cemetery, even though there are no stones there. So being able to do this is really based upon this new method. So John Seligman, who knows my work from the many projects I did in Israel, says, no, I want to do a project with you in Lithuania. I said, John, Lithuania? He says, I want to excavate the great synagogue of Vilna. So I said, John, I'm a Roman archaeologist. You're a Byzantine archaeologist. What are we going to Vilna for? He looks at me and he says, my parents and my grandparents came from Lithuania. I read your grandparents and your great-grandparents came from Lithuania. Let's go to Lithuania. Let's do some of that subsurface mapping and let's excavate what we can excavate while we still can excavate. Is that a good argument? Yes. Oh, it was very good for me. It was very good for me. And, and you know, I, I was a little skeptical because you never know, you go to a foreign country. But I had 10 years earlier worked in a place called Sobibor, the extermination camp. Now, I want to tell you one thing, because I'm not going to get to Sobibor today. And if you want to read about it, you can read about it in my book. Excavating at a, an extermination camp is very tricky. Number one, those of you who know about the extermination camps, they're not the concentration camps. Concentration camps, there are thousands and thousands of concentration camps. But there were only a small number of extermination camps that were built expressly to kill as many Jews as possible and then to cremate their remains so there were no, there was no evidence. There was no evidence. So part of this is, Sobibor is a unique case because on October 14, 1943, the Jews revolted. They rebelled. They resisted. Armed resistance. And they got out. The Nazis were so stunned and so afraid that everybody would hear about it and there would be rebellions at all the extermination camps that they would try to get out. And we would get out. What did they do? In the midst of the war, 1943, they brought in heavy equipment. They covered the entire camp in dirt, planted trees on top of the entire camp, and preserved it for all time. So the other camps, as you might know, were destroyed after the war. 
Many of them were destroyed by the, the Nazis as they left. Others were destroyed because of typhus and disease and all these other problems that are associated with the decaying bodies that were still there. Sobibor, they escaped in 43, covered, and it was preserved for all time. So we came in, we mapped the subsurface, and we were able to show the poles. Over there is where 250,000 people are buried. Over here is where the gas chambers are. And they've been excavating for the past 10 years, and the place is gonna be a new museum with real evidence as opposed to a pilgrimage site. The real evidence will be there on the ground, left in its place with a museum of the thousands and thousands of artifacts we found. So when I talk to you about the importance of this, you have to remember that there are very few people who want to do this. And number two, and I have to say this very clearly, we do not want to victimize the victims a second time by digging up the burials of those people who died during the Holocaust. So using a non-invasive method is critical to this whole story. So after doing this at about 20 sites already in Lithuania, Poland, and now I work in Latvia, they come to me regularly, they say, you know, there's a few other sites we'd like you to look at. So next summer I'll be working on a project where I, I hope to be able to show you uh, a little piece of it in a place called the Warsaw Ghetto. You think, oh, Warsaw Ghetto, that's an interesting place. All of the remains from the Warsaw Ghetto are being turned into a Warsaw Ghetto Uprising Museum which will tell a totally different story about the Jews. They didn't go like lambs to the slaughter. How the Jews resisted is as important as the story of what happened to them. So I was asked, do you think that there's still remains from the Warsaw Ghetto? So we went last summer to a place, I don't know if you've ever heard of this place, Mila 18. Great book, yeah. So this is now a pilgrimage site in a bunker. We looked into the bunker. All the leadership of the ghetto uprising were killed inside the bunker. And then the Soviets came in after the war, capped it with a nice cement top, not thinking. Maybe there's something in there. So we went there is still remains inside of meal 18. So doing this project is as important as reporting on it. So what I'm gonna show you today is not the regular lecture where I just go through slides. I'm gonna show you five documentaries, or maybe four, I'll see how much time we have, that are being made about the work that I'm doing. A lot of these things are, um, made for general consumption, meaning we want this to be on the TV. 20 million people saw a Holocaust escape tunnel worldwide. 20 million people. I will never in my entire life be able to speak to 20 million people. 
But these television documentaries on NOVA and History Channel and the National Geographic, they can speak to millions of people and make sure that people understand you can never get away with genocide. People have asked me, what is the great message of studying the, the Holocaust so intensely? It really is so that people will realize that no one can get away with genocide. And you have to keep showing people because if they don't see it, they say, well, maybe I could get away with this. Okay, so let me show you a few, a few things, get to a couple of the documentaries, and hopefully get to a Q&A. So we'll turn off the lights. Okay. So for those of you who don't know where uh, Lithuania and Poland is, as I always say to students, don't be embarrassed. Poland and Lithuania and Latvia, these are countries that we do not pay a lot of attention to, except um, when the new Russians now are coveting these places again. So you should know, it is a part of a good US policy, and people always ask me, so who supports your work? Who pays for you to go out into the field? I'm gonna tell you the three sources. Number one, US government. That's how we got the Shilute, I'll tell you the story later. US government, the US Embassy, U.S. Commission for the Preservation of America's Heritage Abroad. Number two, big grant foundations that are interested in us doing this work. Third, people like you. And I have to say, it is people like you. So people come to me and they say, look, I want you to go to Rakiskis. Guy came up, the American lawyer, he had seen the, the documentary, he says, can you go to Rokiskis? Rokiskis is a northeast corner of Lithuania on the border with Latvia. And he says, can you go to Rokiskis? There are some of the most compelling stories. And there's this one story about a woman that we call the Anne Frank of Lithuania. Can you see if you can find her? Oh my gosh. So part of this is someone comes to me with a great idea. I research the idea, I see whether it's even possible for us to do it. And that is the beauty of what I do with ground penetrating radar and electrical resistivity tomography. I can tell where people are buried without having to dig them up. And so it took us a while, but as you'll see if we, when I get to the documentary, I'm gonna show you a trailer for this documentary and nobody else has seen it in the United States, so you'll be able to enjoy it for the first time to see what we actually did. So who am I taking? Who am I doing this with? Well, first of all, I do take volunteers. So I am looking for a few volunteers uh, to go with us to actually do the work. Uh, they sit with my 18 to 22-year-olds in a square, working on the geophysics, working on the geoscience. We train you. If you're healthy enough, if you're strong enough to go out into the field, this is what we want because I need a few people to sit with my 18 to 22 year olds and teach them the ancient art. 
of conversation. <laughs> because they don't have, they can't wear anything because it's an excavation site. They can't go to doing this because it's very expensive to do this in, in a foreign country. But more importantly, this is a generation of students that needs to go out and experience it for themselves. I've been teaching almost 40 years. I'll tell you something, the students today are very different than I had nearly 40 years ago. Okay, I'm just saying it. I don't want to say it, don't look at anybody. You may know what I'm talking about. I had great students almost 40 years ago who would open books and read, go to the library, write great papers, and then I'd take them to the field and they would go like this. Do I have to get down on my hands and knees here? These are new jeans. And these are new sneakers. And was I supposed to bring gloves? Today, they go to the dig site. They get down on their hands and knees. And I'll tell you something, they want to smell it. They want to touch it. They want to see it. They want to smell it. They want to experience it for themselves. So I have to say, on, on balance, this is the best generation of students that I've had. And it's good to know. It, and it is something that was totally, I got all these different other professors at the university uh, cracking to me. They say, it's, it's terrible. I can't get them to read a book. I can't get them to read. And I say, I have good students. <laughs> and they can't figure it out why because this is what this generation wants to do. They want to experience it. So part of this thing is I'm gonna show you, wait one second before I get out. This is me, this is the students, this is ground penetrating radar, this is electrical resistivity tomography, this is my geographer that maps every single thing, but really, it's all about the students. And people ask me all the time, so I'm going to say it right up front, who are the students? Most of my students who go to Lithuania, who go to Israel, Spain, Greece, are not Jewish. And a lot of them are Jewish studies majors and minors. And so I have one, one student who appears in one of my slides here when I show it to you. Uh, Nicola Watt, she's a Lebanese Christian in a liberal arts university. And what does she do? She's a Lebanese Christian who's a Jewish studies major. And why? So they asked her in one of these documentaries, you know, they, they're talking to the people and they say, why are you a Jewish studies major? She says, it's so interesting. <laughs> That's what you want to hear. <laughs> That's what you want to hear. Okay, so these are the three different techniques that I'm gonna be talking about today. You'll see them, ground penetrating radar has been used for a lot of different things. We see ground penetrating radar all the time. We can call it GPR for short. It goes down about two, maybe three meters, up until about nine feet. It's very effective, meaning if you're looking at a burial, single burial, it's usually gonna be about six feet. So nine feet is effective to find burials, and especially for cemeteries. Done a lot of cemetery work, unfortunately. 
Second one, though, is there's a lot of things that are below <laughs> six or nine feet. And so happens that the escape tunnel, that you're going to see later, the escape tunnel was 15, 20 feet below the surface. They were actually tunneling so far beneath the ground, and they were also tunneling through other burials in order to get to an area in the forest where they could escape from this burial pit that they were being kept in. We never would have discovered it, but for the fact that we're using this tomography. And, and it is an MRI for the ground. And oft, after many thoughts, I said, would you ever go to have major surgery without doing an x-ray, a CAT scan, something before they, do, they open you up? Like, I'm going to, I think I know where it is. I think I know where it is. Would you go to that surgeon? Well, why had archaeology been stuck in this model of starting at the top and going down? So part of this is a methodological change, a paradigm shift that we've now initiated. Unfortunately, this is half a million dollars worth of equipment that no university could ever own. Only private industry could own it. So I just want to make sure that I give proper credit Worley Parsons is the largest gas and oil exploration company in the world. And I saw a lecture, actually, I accidentally came into a lecture. I went to an archaeology conference. I ran into the lecture a little late. I sat in the back watching slides, and I'm sitting there, and I say, I'm not at the archaeology conference. And I realized it was on the fourth floor, and I was on the fifth floor. And that, what I was watching was gas and oil exploration and how they do it and what techniques they use. So they will not put one cent into an excavation drilling if they don't know there's gas and oil there. So I'm watching this and I'm saying to myself, this is a good idea. And then the guy says, and I have to know that when I sink a drill bit into the ground, that I can get through the materials with the drill bit that I've chosen. So it can now distinguish everything in the subsurface. Stone, glass, metal, ceramics, bone, and it can tell me exactly where they're located before I even touch the ground. So the beauty of this technique is very simple. I do not have to excavate where I shouldn't be excavating. And when I do excavate, I know exactly what I'm excavating for. Is everybody with me? Yeah. Shake your heads, because that's is the, uh, later it's not gonna go, it's not gonna go through so easily. So this is the famous, oh my gosh. You know, I, I, there's three things in life that they give you a great nachas. Everybody know the word nachas? Nachas means really a, a pleasure. This is behind me the great synagogue of Vilna. It looks like it's not. It looks like it's just a school because the great synagogue, as you're going to see in a few minutes, is twice the size. It's two football fields back to back. And it is so big that it was called the Schulhof. It had a courtyard and a bathhouse attached to this massive synagogue 
that had 12 smaller cloison, or these smaller synagogues inside. And it existed for about 400 years and was destroyed by the Nazis, but raised by the Soviets. And the Soviets, in the good Soviet fashion, this is why you gotta know the stories of the Soviets. Good Soviet fashion, eh, they're not gonna do too much work. What did they decide to do? They bulldozed it, and they put a cement slab down, and they built an elementary school on top. Okay? Ironically preserving everything below this, this cement. Because the great synagogue had a secret. This is the secret. You ready for the secret? Shake your head. And if you want to read more about the secret, where will you find it? In my book. <laughs> the secret of the great synagogue is very simple. The Jews of Lithuania wanted to build the largest religious institution of Lithuania. Unfortunately, there was an ecclesiastical rule in Europe that you couldn't build a synagogue any higher than the local church. So you can just imagine how this was. The Jews get together for a board meeting. Do you ever hear of a board meeting? The Jews get together for a board meeting, and at the board meeting they said, we want to build the greatest synagogue in the world. What are we going to do? We can only build three stories high because it's a local church. And one guy, I got a better idea. Instead of going up, let's go down. And they built the great synagogue two stories below the street level. So when the Nazis destroyed the great synagogue, and the Soviets came in and raised it. They pushed, smushed all of the artifacts, all of the remains into those two floors below the cement cap that the Soviets put in. Thank you to the Soviets for being so prescient. <laughs> they preserved it for all time. So part of this is, this is our excavations we have now. Two more years left on the excavations, and then they're going to be, oh, I didn't mention, the, after we took out 150,000 artifacts from under the school, the government of Lithuania closed the school and gave us the school. So we could excavate inside the school. Well, we found under the principal's office, it's always there, under the principal's <laughs> office was the main bima of the great synagogue. So they put up a sign in front, and it's got my name on it. And I have to tell you, there's very few things I've got to show you, but there's my name, there's my name. Yeah, 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 my ancestors are kvelling. <laughs> but uh, and this is the group that I took last year. And as you can see, I take adults with students, and I think that that's a great mix. Okay. So this is what the task they do. They sit around, they, we take out artifacts, they clean the artifact, like a regular archeological excavation. And for those who've never seen it, this is Nova uh, filming in the, an episode about the, uh, the great synagogue. Uh, I will get to a little bit of the, the, the different stories, but we have now had two major television uh, documentaries. One is called The Good Nazi about a labor camp located right at the outskirts of uh, Vilnius, where 1,257 Jews 
were taken out of the Vilna ghetto right before it was liquidated by a Nazi officer who put them into apartments on the edge of town and made up a fictitious labor camp called HKP, where they were supposed to be repairing vehicles, but where they were, in fact, repairing them and breaking them at the same time. It was like, anybody who's ever seen Hogan's Heroes? This was Hogan's Heroes, and Major Karl Plage was the person who engineered this whole thing. And it's a wonderful story because I asked the question in the documentary, is there a good Nazi? He was a good Nazi. And you know, I'll tell you, the largest contingent of Vilna's Jews were saved by a Nazi officer at this camp. So it, it made a, a huge impact when it was shown last year uh, in Israel on uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. Uh, this is one of the stories I'm gonna be talking about, finding Matilda. Um, because I have to say that trying to find the remains of one particular family in a field, actually in a forest, uh, is nearly impossible. It's like a scientific miracle. But I had, I had really good testimonies by witnesses who saw the killings. I had really good air photographs, because I don't know if you know this, the Nazis were obsessive about taking air photographs of the entire country, which we have at our Naval Archives here in Washington, D.C. And we can see everything in 1944, and then I can see it again today with a drone. So part of this whole thing is to establish, can we actually find the location? Once we find the location, can we confirm it, its existence, and then can we see if there's anything in the location that matches a burial? All those three things were met, and I, had, I did it with a film crew standing right as we did it. Those are people he, sitting here, they know who Anne Frank is. Sometimes I talk to people and they don't know. Anne Frank is probably one of the most influential people of not only the 20th, 20th century, 21st century. A young teenager left us a diary. For those of you who don't know the end of the story, you know, I talk to uh, the kids, students, and they always say, oh, she gave us great hope when I read that diary. And I say, you do realize she was turned in by her neighbors and she was killed in an extermination camp. Oh, they always go, really? So I have to say one of the great tragedies for me is not being able to name names and to locate people, real people with names. Anne Frank will never find her. But Matilda Olkin, I had a chance of finding. And before I even went out to look for it, this guy who came to me, the donor who said, you should do this, said, we just discovered her diary in the altar of the local Roman Catholic Church in the city where she was killed. They kept it under the altar and so now we know her whole story. And she was 19 years old. And I have to tell you, for my 19-year-old students, looking for a 19-year-old teenager in the forest, 
and being able to read her poetry, read her entries. That's what made it for them, you understand? It was a real person that I identify with. So, I'll leave Anne Frank. So this is what we do, we take them out to the field, we immediately, they, they jump out of the vans, they know they have to document the area, location, and that's what they do. Then we take them out into the field to do the ground penetrating radar. And you know who does all the work? The students. Because if I do not create another generation of archaeologists and geoscientists and people who are interested in following up on these stories, how many do you think I can do in one lifetime? But when you have a cadre of 50, 100, 200 students that you've trained, I, feel I can go to sleep at night and be able to say to myself, if tomorrow I don't wake up, the work will continue. So this is just a forest scene. This is, I uh, just wanted to prepare you, so I'm going to show you a, a, a part of the documentary. Uh, this is one of the student film crew because I had the film crew filming the whole thing with students. And this is, uh, the, you're looking at the computer with the ground penetrating radar uh, up by our geo, geoscientists from the University of Wisconsin. And this is a map that a local person drew. She was eight years old when she saw the family killed in the forest. And she says, she drew me a map. You can only get that. You can only get that from real, uh, real testimonies. These are those photographs that I was telling you about from Nazi era. You could see the the, the black and whites that uh, you can get from the naval archives. I have now all of the archives, uh, and I can see what the site looked like. And I I saw a, a, an area in the forest which corresponded to what she was saying, which is about uh, 24 feet in and 70 meters in. Uh, and we were able to find the, that location, cut down all the trees, did the ground penetrating radar, found the family. And what's the reason? A lot of people ask me, so what's the reason? So you found, big deal. So in urban renewal that takes place in these places, suddenly they don't say, you know what? This forest should be condominia. Now they have a map and they know, the Lithuanians and the municipality knows that I know, that they know, <laughs> that I know, that we know what's in the forest there. So the other thing is I want to just point out to you so you get a feel for this. I never make it perfunctory. Yeah, another scientific expedition is over. There was a stone put up with the Olkin family on the edge of the road that led to the forest, and we conducted a meaningful moment for students, which is very important. It's not a religious surface, per se, but to have the students understand it's not only about the science, it's also about the people. So this is uh, Matilda Olkin. I'll give you a little bit about her. Matilda Olkin, uh, this is when she was uh, dressed up for Purim. And this is her diary. This is her diary in one of those uh, typical books. 
And what you'll see in the, in the uh, short clip that I'm going to show you, her poetry is very meaningful, written in Lithuanian. And what's very meaningful about it is it speaks to Lithuanians. They can realize what they have lost with the loss of this one single woman Jewish poet from 1941. And so it was very moving for a lot of uh, Lithuanians. So they created a play, like the Anne Frank play. Remember the Anne Frank play? Everybody remembers that. They created a, a play about Matilda. And what's interesting about the play, the play was seen by most of the entire area where she was killed. And just so I don't miss this point, a lot of people always like to think, oh, she was killed by the Nazis. It's terrible what the Nazis did. Yeah. Unfortunately, there were very few Nazis in this area. This was done by her neighbors. And that is what is the sad reality. So the fact that they're all now seeing this play, and it won a big award, you know, a Tony Award for its presentation, you know what I say to the, those Lithuanian people that I meet when I see them? I say, good for you. Remember your history. Don't forget it. So here's Matilda getting a little older, and I have pictures. By the way, I have great archives of Matilda now. And Matilda was, in her middle school, she was one of the best writers. But the, the language of the poetry speaks to modern Lithuanians. That is what it's about. You understand? It's not just, it's not written in Yiddish. It's not written in some dialect that they can't understand. They understand exactly. And they now know the history. So for them, it is a story that is a story of their Jewish history that they can understand and appreciate. So this is the church where the diary was found nearby, a little village. And, oh, I should go back. This is, and this is the students, uh, student filmmakers making uh, parts of the film in the church. So let me show you this one clip. I'm gonna go to the clip now. I'm gonna step out of the way. I'm gonna hope that everything works. I don't think our generation truly understands what war really means. You learn about it in school, and you hear people talk about their experiences in war, but you know, understanding what Hitler and the Nazis did takes a lot of time, and you know, a lot of people ask, how could this really happen? So this is the site where the Olkin and Jaffe families were taken off of the wagon and murdered by the white Omdanders. The people who came back later reburied them in a much more dignified burial. That's what we're looking for. Now we're setting up a grid to do ground penetrating radar. If it's there, 
Lithuania. Through history and science, this documentary looks at the personal experience of Lithuanian Jews during World War II through the lens of a young college student. Her name was Matilda. Matilda Olkin was murdered by Nazi collaborators for being Jewish. Matilda also kept a diary. That diary was found long after her death by a priest in the local church where this Jewish family lived. As we got to know more and more about the story of Matilda, we really found it more of our mission to find out what happened to her and where she was buried. Finding Matilda. by the way, is a, fil a film that's being done by students. It's being shown today in Melbourne, Australia at a film festival. <coughs> Taking a student to Melbourne, to Melbourne, Australia to show this at a film festival. Are they gonna remember the chemistry course they took in, in college? None of those students are ever gonna forget what they did in Lithuania. So I'm gonna show you a little bit about the Great Synagogue. This is the Great Synagogue as it looked in 1939, and you can all see, this is that church steeple. You see that? It was just, so it's about the same height as the Great Synagogue, but the Great Synagogue had everything. In front, just so you know, it had a Whole Foods right here, <laughs> and a Starbucks inside. No, really, it had a, a, a Kosher meat markets were inside the, the synagogue. Uh, on the second floor was the most famous Jewish library in the world. Strashen Library is there. And then there were 12 different cloisons, these small synagogues that were from every single uh, walk of life. And the Jews who lived there could be bricklayers or glaziers or painters. They could be, uh, uh we say, Hasidic. And they had a small cloise. They had a small cloise. They had a place where they could do their own prayer services inside the great synagogue. It was like a big JCC on steroids. Oh, I should tell you why, though. Uh, so that's the, that's the elementary school. And you can see this is an 1893 drawing about how they were restoring one of the floors. And so we can see the, the stairs going down. They were putting in new stairs. Um, this, by the way, is doing ground penetrating radar for the first time in 2015. We went, we didn't know what we would find, and what we found was, even when we worked around the Great Synagogue, and what we did was, whenever we did excavations, we had to cover it up every year, and the kids would come back, they would not know that we would have been there, and then we came back, we had GPS coordinates, we'd start again. But part of the whole thing was identifying where to excavate, and then excavate. So, there's Nicola Wad, by the way, with an Israeli uh, archaeologist who was working with us at the site. Um, this is what we produce. A lot of people are not interested in these things, but this is what I'm interested in. These are maps, and these tell you exactly what's there. So when you look at this, see how we've circled things? That's where we start. What's, what do you start with? What do you end with? And we did it all around. This is the school. So we did all the ex excavating around the school until 
They closed the school, which was last year. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you another clip. This, this, this one works really well. It'll be much easier. This is a clip of the secrets of the synagogue. Now you know something about it. So I have a television documentary that's being made about secrets of the synagogue. The Great Synagogue really referred to a complex that was kind of the heart and soul of the Jewish community of Vilna for the city of Vilnius, a magnificent structure that uh, came into existence before it was subsequently destroyed uh, during the Second World War. In the 1500s, the Jews came to Lithuania and built the most famous synagogue of Europe. It had a secret and survived the Nazis and the Soviets only to be rediscovered in 2015. This is the story of the secret that saved it. What we're trying to do with the ground penetrating radar is seeing where voids are in the subsurface. So we have this feature where the steps are going into the back of the synagogue and then there's a road and then it drops off into this cavity in the subsurface. So one of the questions is, is under some of these features, are there cavities that should be investigated in the future? But the secret of the synagogue that saved it from destruction was that it was built two floors below the street. And when it was destroyed, it was completely covered by its own debris under an elementary school in downtown Vilnius. Until now. a book about this excavation. We have a number of chapters which concentrate on various aspects of the site, the history of the site, the culture of the site, the physical remains, the finds, and then some sort of interpretation so people can understand what we did here. Okay, so I want to get move on to the next series of topics, which is HKP. For those people who were very intrigued by the good Nazi title, uh, whenever I go to a country, and now I've gone to uh, six countries worldwide. The first thing I do is I have one project where I've been invited to do work. I then contract with the gas and oil company to get the equipment. And I have a whole team of geophysicists that come with us. Then I get my students together and we go to a country. And as I'm planning to go to a country, you know what I do? I'm going to a country like Lithuania, I'm going to Poland, I'm going to Latvia with a half a million dollars worth of equipment. You know what I do? I offer it to all the other archeological projects in the country. How much? Free. Free. They have to be able to come up with their own uh, infrastructure. They have to tell me what the, we're actually looking for. And then I can assess whether it's worth spending two days, three days on their site. But the interesting thing about this is, at one of the times when I was there, people came to me and they said, you know, you should go investigate tooth places in Vilna. Number one, there's a site on the outskirt, which is an apartment building, and it's a place where a Nazi major made it his duty to save Jews rather than killing them. I said, I never heard of this story before. Well, it's an interesting story. In fact, after the war, you know that uh, Yad Vashem has this category of righteous Gentiles, right? 
please, if you never heard of this, these are the righteous Gentiles that saved Jews during the, during the Holocaust. Well, they tried three times to get, get this Nazi major in, and each time Yad Vashem said, but he's a Nazi. They couldn't get beyond the fact that he was a Nazi who went beyond all of his scruple, all of the things that he'd been taught to do the right thing. So after three times, in 2005, he was finally inducted into one of the um, great honor. He had been dead since 1957. But his story is so amazing, and nobody knew about it. So one woman, a historian, came to me from uh, Vilna Gaon Jewish uh, State Museum and said, look, I have all this material on HKP. I know exactly where they were. And then there is one series of testimonies. Those people will survive. You should go to talk to them. There's a guy who lives in Connecticut whose parents and grandparents were saved. You should go and see him. So I did and we talked and I came back again to look at it and I said, I don't know. These apartment buildings, there's still people living there. And what were we looking for? How did one Nazi engineer, major, officer, save so many people? What he did was he brought men, women, and children to this site, put them into apartments, and he said, there's going to come a time when the SS is going to come and liquidate my camp. Prepare yourselves. And you know what they did? They built malinas. They built hiding places inside their apartments with fake walls. So in this documentary, we brought all of our geoscience. We went into people's, knocked on the door, can I see your apartment? Yes, okay, thank you. We had concrete scanners that could look behind the wall, and in each case, we found these hiding places. So they each one, the people, when you're walking out of their apartment, they say, Is, are the people dead back there? And I said, no, it's, do you think we could use that as living space? Uh, and I said, I don't know, but I want to document it. So we, we did document it, and we found all these, these spaces, and to me, the telling of this story is only complete because the SS came on July 1st, 1944, to liquidate the camp. It was a Friday. And they stood up in front of uh, all of the people who were still left in, in the apartments, and they said, look, I'm being reassigned to the Eastern Front. This is what Plage, the, the major, the good Nazi, did. I'm being reassigned on Monday to the... Uh, to the front. The SS will come on Monday to escort you out of this place. And you know, the SS are very good at escorting people. And they all got the message. And on Monday, they did roll call in the morning, and most of the Jews were gone. There were some Jews, you know, who showed up for roll call. They were immediately killed. But those people who went into hiding, all were saved. 
So I'll just show you a couple of pictures and I'll show you a little bit about the good Nazi. These are what the apartment buildings look like today. This is what they looked like in 1943, 1944. They look exactly the same. They were built, by the way, oddly enough, in 1898 by a Jewish philanthropist who wanted to have really good housing for the poor. And there's still people living there in these apartments. It was a good place to live even today. But I was afraid because they were having a little uh, second thoughts about knocking down these buildings. I said, before they knock down the buildings, we have to see what's still there. So this is Plage. By the way, they named a lot of things after him back in Germany. And they actually have a uh, piece of army history that's taught about him. And they call what he did the Plage ploy. Because what did he do? He figured out a way to follow orders and to do the right thing. Ooh, how difficult is that? So I'll show you just one clip from this. I remember him as the good German. He was very, very isolated and afraid that the SS would find out that his intention is to save them. Why would a Nazi major be protecting and saving Jews when the rest of the Germans in Vilna were committed to slaughtering them? HKP is unique. It's a killing field where people are still living. We're trying to locate a mass burial site. You can identify where things happen without having to excavate. We were hiding underneath the floor. They were taking the children to be killed, and I was saved on top of the roof. This could be where the hole was that extended down under the foundation and into this space. We have two distinct pits here. It's highly likely that there are still bodies in that area. This is where they hid a hundred people packed into these footings. That's all we could hear was crying, screaming, machine gun, silence. So I'd like to move to my, I don't know how am I doing on time. Okay, I'm going to move, move ahead. I'm going to leave my, my projects in Warsaw for another time. You'll, come, you'll invite me back for another time. I have other things to talk about. Um, and I'd like to talk about the Holocaust escape tunnel. How many people saw it on uh, PBS when it was shown? Well, you should look again this year in April when they do the Holocaust uh, movies on, uh, on PBS. They should be showing the Holocaust escape tunnel again on PBS. So when you go to Ponar, you're shown this very nice, very beautifully manicured area where almost 100,000 people were killed. And they look like just burial pits. And it's nicely manicured. It looks like it's a forest lawn. It's a beautiful uh, manicured uh, lawn. And it's a park, so you can go in. So when I went to the Vilna Gaon Jewish State Museum, they offered me, they said, you know, we'd like to, you to go back to Ponar. 
Ponar is like the Auschwitz of Lithuania because so many Jews were killed in this one very small place. And by the way, it was the Holocaust by bullets. Okay, there was no other way of killing these people. The, and then when they got finished, they had a little problem. They had 100,000 people laying around inside of these pits. So guess what the, the Nazis came up with? The burning brigade. The burning brigade. So the burning brigade, they took 80 Jews that were still alive. And they brought them to the area to chop wood. And once they were finished chopping wood, they put them in one of the burial pits. They shackled them. And they said, every day, you're going to come out of the pits. You're going to take the wood that you have so dutifully cut, and you're going to burn all the bodies. So these people realized that when they were finished burning the bodies, they were going to be the last victims, and that nobody would know what happened there. So what did they do? They hatched a plan. The plan was to dig a 100-foot-long tunnel out of the burial pit where they were kept overnight. And every night they came back from burning bodies and they dug with their hands, with their spoons. And they got out on the last night of Passover. 1944. And they lived to tell the tale. And do I have to tell you? No one believed them. No one believed them. They, mount, they got together with the partisans and they said, they said, where are you coming from? From Ponar. Nah, that's impossible. Nobody gets out of Ponar. We built a tunnel. We got out. So I have to tell you, when I was proposed this by the, uh, the museum, it was one of these kinds of situations where they said, you know, we don't really think it exists. But we have 11 testimonies that are very clear, very descriptive. <clears throat> Maybe you can look to see if you can find it. Two days, we found the whole tunnel. And the amazing thing is, so as we were in the forest already, they said, oh, do you think you could help us? We don't really know where everybody is buried. So we found in the forest another burial pit that was completely covered that had about 7,000 bodies. And we marked it. And, they said, and I said to the park department, you should make sure there's no building here. So part of this is, totally random project that was an addition, an add-on for our Vilna Great Synagogue project, and it ended up being the centerpiece. So for those of you who've never seen it, I'll just show you a couple of things. This is uh, 1944 photographs I was telling you about. Uh, you can actually see the lime that's in the ash around the pits. This is what we did. We came in, we uh, overlaid it with uh, modern specifics before we even started, so we knew exactly where everything was and its orientation. 
Oh, by the way, you should know that there was one other really interesting witness to the entire killing from 1941 until December of 1942. A writer was in a house at Ponar, and he could see everything going on daily. And he would write his little account of what was going on. And we have his account. You know why? Because he got so paranoid that he was going to be discovered, he kept taking all of his journalistic notes and he put them into lemonade jars and buried them in the forest. And the locals saw him going out to the forest one day and they said, he must be hiding gold. So after the war, they started to dig and they found his entire diary, each in these lemonade jars, glass lemonade jars. And it's an amazing testimony with details of what was going on daily. But the people who got out really are amazing people, and that's what, where the story really became for me very personal, because um, I got to know people who actually dug their way out. And you know, I've been asked many times, I did large NPR interview, uh, and the interviewer says to me, what do, you, what do you learn from this? I said, first of all, these people who did this are a new level of heroes. These people who did this represent a type of courage that I can only hope that I would ever have. And you have to hope against hope that if you were in this kind of situation, what would you do? Would you have the courage to dig at night after all day burning your neighbors and your relatives? Relatives, they found their relatives and they had to burn them. I mean, the most horrific situation. And yet, these people who came out told the story and no one else asked them any questions about it. So Isaac Dugim and, and uh, Yuli Farber, two, two of the people who led the, the, um, the, the digging, really amazing people. But taking the students to do this work, so when the, all these interviewers started coming after they, they heard that we had discovered the escape tunnel, so they started coming, I said, don't talk to me anymore. Talk to the students. And the students gave about 20 interviews. And I've never been so proud of regular American students, especially non-Jews, who have to explain about the burning brigade, have to explain about the Holocaust to these interviewers. They're sitting there and going, wow, are you a professional? They said, no, I'm a business student at the university. So I'll just end with uh, showing one, one clip. This, by the way, is the uh, escape tunnel, as it looks to us. As you can see, it was quite deep underneath the, uh, the area, and going 100 feet and going underneath the barbed wire fence is a hole to do. Now, I have to tell, tell you, just as, as an aside, yes, I'm working on Atlantis. I've made three television documentaries on Atlantis. So if you're interested in Atlantis, you'll find it. 
My last television documentary with Atl on Atlantis was done with James Cameron. Have you heard this guy? Okay. So James Cameron made this great documentary with me, and they sent out their press release to the world that we had discovered Atlantis on June 29th, 2016. And NOVA sent out their press release on the discovery of the Holocaust escape tunnel on June 29th. Which story got picked up? The Holocaust escape tunnel was seen and it's totally swamped. So James Cameron calls and says, aren't you the same Richard Freund who did this uh, vinyl Atlantis? Why are people so interested in the Holocaust escape tunnel over Atlantis? And by the way, he spent 10 times more than what Nova spent on my television documentary. And I said, because people really are very moved by this story. And so it was in the New York Times all over, and we were trying to finish the documentary. So what did we do? We found the children of the people who escaped. And we gathered them all together in Tel Aviv, and we showed them. And I have to say, their grandchildren sat there dumbfounded. I never believed him when he told this story. Children who didn't even know the story from the parents, now they know. So I, I know there's very little closure for people who've gone through the Holocaust. And I know there's very little closure for people whose parents and grandparents went through the Holocaust. This was very cathartic for me because what it did was we can do something. We can bring some measure of, of closure. In the heart of Lithuania, archaeologists search for a tunnel rumored to have been dug by desperate Jewish prisoners inside a little-known Nazi execution site called Ponar. They were systematically exterminating people at this site. Once you get taken away, you go to Ponar to die. Nobody comes out of Ponar alive. Let's look at the IP, see what we get. The investigation will open a nearly forgotten chapter of the Holocaust. The story of Vilna, a renowned center of Jewish culture, destroyed by the Nazis. Now, a team of scientists from around the world has come here. Could be a trench, could be a pit. Searching for the last traces of a vanished people. Where's the grave here? Who were they? Vilna was one of the most important cities in Jewish history. It had the greatest scholars. It had the greatest writers. Armed with advanced scientific tools, their work will help restore the memory of this lost world. And something more. We're picking up two hotspots. A story of hope in the city's final hours. But time is running out. Few remain who remember. Is there anything left to be found? There is something there. The secret history of Vilma and the legendary Holocaust escape tunnel. Take the moment. Take the moment. 
right now on Nova. So if you really want to watch that, I just I should tell you that uh, you can actually see this documentary. Um, I'm not going to be showing the whole documentary here unless uh, you decide that you want to bring me back and I'll show all these things in toto. Uh, but I am going to take a few questions. That is where I'm going to end today. And I'm glad you stayed on for a, a longer lunch than you probably expected. Thank you. In my book, I will tell you about how I've worked at Kovno for the past five years as well, because the municipality came to me and they say, we have these sites called Fort 9, Fort 7, Fort 4, and the Jewish cemetery where they basically just threw people uh, who had been killed. And it, Kovno is one of the great sites of Jewish culture, Yiddish culture, religious culture. And so few people, so this summer we're going back to Fort Nine and we're gonna be finishing our work at Fort Nine. This is the third year in a row working. But Kovno is a wonderful, important site that very few people know about. Okay, Yes. Yeah. Right. In Poland. Yes. So those extermination camps that are, have lovely grass fields, have you done any geoscientific, uh, to see what's under the underground? Okay, so I'm going to repeat that. All the different extermination camps around uh, Poland, they're all, and you have to be very careful about saying this, this is Nazi-occupied Poland, and these are Nazi extermination camps, so I don't get blocked. He's taking all this down. You see, this is. Uh, are there, is there work to be done? The answer is yes. Because what they did was they burned down the camps and thinking there's nothing left. Unfortunately, burning does very little to get rid of all of the devices and digging and burials that were done in preparation for the opening of these camps. So one of the things is there's a few different geoscientists, some groups of archaeologists who are now taking it on as their task to do it. Unfortunately, and I'm going to say this out loud, working in a place that has been totally reworked, I'm not going to mention the names, but if it's been totally reworked by good people who want to build memorials and, and, and they totally destroy all the evidence. And then to go back and you say, can you please restore this? I can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again when it's been changed by people after the war. So I can only go to places, and thank goodness there are other people doing this. There are so many places, but go to places that have not been uh, totally 
redone in the name of pilgrimage and the name of tourism, okay? But that's the reason why Sobibor is so important. Yes? Uh, the last time I was in Lithuania, which was in May of uh, 2018, um, after having seen the documentaries, in fact, I bought two copies of it. You can get them for about $15 on Nova. Right. Yes. Um, I took my little group to, uh, which was my children, grandchildren, to Panair. Right. And I wanted to see the entrance and the exit. Okay, so here's, I'm going to repeat the question. You go to Ponar today. You get on a plane, you go to Lithuania, you go to Ponar, they show you the pits, and then they, they say to you, and we found the escape tunnel. And you look at the, uh, the, the where is the, where's the entrance here? Where's the exit? Oh, we haven't gotten around to marking it. Yeah, that's what made no sense. Okay, well, this is a, the, look, it's, it's not my country. I can give them a map, but I can't force them to drink. Okay, I can't force them to do, to do what they need to do, but they are making rapid changes for Lithuania, and that is to their credit. For those of you who don't know, there are lots of places around the world where genocides and Holocaust happen, and not only are they not doing anything, they're putting up obstacles to anybody doing anything. So, stay tuned. Thank you very much again.